Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, for some reason, I'm very, very tired. Uh, the reading today was a lot harder to get through than it was the previous two days, and I hope that this doesn't uh, spell an early burnout. Anyway, so uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about children in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, if you got into a time machine and set the dial back to, say, 1800, and you got out, one of the surprising things that you'd see is that children were everywhere. There were far more children as a proportion of the population than there are today. Something like a third to a half of all people alive in Europe in the 18th century were below the ages of 15. And that's because of lower lifespans and higher birth rates. Um, because people lived for a shorter period of time and had more children, there was just a greater number of children around. So it's puzzling then that since so much of the population of Europe were children, that we don't know a ton about what the lives of children were like. One thing that we do know is that there was a huge change in the way that children were treated uh, sometime around the turn of the 19th century. Now, ideas around what childhood was like have always changed. Um, for instance, Puritans uh, thought of man as sinful. Humans were born with original sin, and it was only because of God's grace that they could overcome it. So when children were born, they weren't innocent little angels. They were devilish little sinners who had to be corrected by the community and instilled virtues so that they could be virtuous. So here's a quote from a German uh, uh, sermon in the 1520s. Just as a cat craves mice, a fox chickens, and a wolf cub sheep, so infant humans are inclined in their hearts to adultery, fornication, impure desires, lewdness, idol worship, belief in magic, hostility, quarreling, passion, anger, strife, dissension, factiousness, hatred, murder, drunkenness, gluttony, and more. So for the Puritans, the way that you raised a child was to save its soul. Now, in the 18th century, childhood was a little bit different. Childhood was more like a gradual admission to the adult world. Um, a lot of labor at that time was done at home, and children were actually an economic benefit, not a hindrance, because kids could work, maybe starting around age six. Um, but this work isn't like going off to the offices today. You shouldn't imagine a bunch of 18th century six-year-old business people going off with briefcases. No, this was a lot less intense. Work was seasonal. It was done within the family. Your mom and dad would be sitting around with you as you worked, and it might be even a little bit fun. And as the kid grew older, their responsibilities around the house would increase until they got pimply and annoying, and they'd be farmed off to some kinfolk to work on their farm, or they'd be given to an apprenticeship where they'd learn a trade from a master. So here in the 18th century, raising a kid was all about teaching it how to work. After the 1800s, there was a great uh, innovation that helped children to work, and it was called the factory. 
a lot of people were actually really excited about the prospect of factories helping to reduce youth unemployment, which is not something that we today are entirely concerned about. And youth employment was huge. In 1843, half of the entire British cotton industry was under 18. Now, perhaps the best example of this was what's called the monitorial system of schooling. So also around this time, there's more schools being built, there's a greater concern for children's education, and in traditional 19th century style, there's the development of a cheap liberal way of teaching young children, and that is you employ child labor. So in the monitorial system, you have a single adult teacher per school, and this single adult teacher teaches a bunch of young adolescents the day's lesson. Then those young adolescents go off into little corners of the schoolhouse and they teach the younger children. And of course, because the young adolescents are not full adults, you don't need to pay them as much. This is the epitome of what the 19th century is about. You get a reform. Let's teach the children. And you have to do it on the cheap. Let's teach the children by using child labor. But starting around 1830 or 1850, there was a new development in the treatment of children. Children were still treated as little sinful devils that had to be uh, uh, taught virtue. They were still treated as incipient workers who a family could use to help make ends meet. But there was a new idea of childhood. And that idea of childhood is very, very familiar to us today. That's the idea of childhood as a special and sacred time of life with its own ways of being, which involve playing around, having toys, being doted upon, and daydreaming. With this idea of childhood, there's only two places that the child really belongs, the home and the school. This in part was spurred by people getting freaked out by the child labor that the, the people in the monitorial system were using so well. This is where we get the image of the destitute chimney sweep who has their, their poor little cute Dickensian faces all smooted up with, with, with chimney dust. Um, young chimney sweeps were actually treated really horribly. Um, they were stolen and traded like slaves. Um, to get them to climb up, uh, people resorted to fire and print picks. And if they weren't killed by suffocation, they actually had really high death rates from cancer of the scrotum. Now, the other ideal was that children belonged in schools in the home. Schooling gradually opened up. It wasn't until the 1870s that there were state schools in every neighborhood, and going to this state school wasn't compulsory until 1880. But even before them, there was a large collection of schools available, from private elite schools that you might know the name of, like Eton and Rugby, to these small little schools called dame schools, which were basically just run out of the back of somebody's house that would, you know, they were one half babysitter, one half reading teacher. Now, there's two very interesting developments that happen in these schools. The first is sports. Kids are always playing, and they might be playing with balls or uh, uh, punching each other. 
But in the 1860s, a bunch of school teachers in upper class schools decided that they needed to regulate the play of the children under their care. Instead of letting them just run wild in the schoolyard, the teachers would come out during recess and breaks and kind of referee the school children's play, eventually coming up with lists of agreed upon rules that formalized these childhood sports. From this, we get a bunch of today's sports, like rugby, which is named after the private school of rugby. The second big development in Victorian schools is a something that children hate, and I hate, and every teacher hates, and they are exams. In the 1830s, people weren't really taking exams. There might be some exams for the Admiralty, but by and large, people didn't have much uh, uh, truck with them. But by the 1880s, exams had become the fundamental part of a school child's life. And like today, they were, your, your exam results would open doors of employment to you or close them. Girls did stuff as well in schools. One of the, the biggest things that girls were taught how to do, surprisingly enough, was how to sew. It was a huge part of the curriculum for female education in the 1870s. And it was not some frivolous topic that you know, was just given to women as a consolation prize for not getting as much math. No, sewing made a huge part of the Victorian ladies' uh, uh, sense of identity. Um, if you look through magazines that were pitched towards Victorian families, you'll see these sewing patterns that would require incredible amounts of acumen to be able to pull off, and they're treated just like crossword puzzles are today. Um, and sewing was, was probably quite fun. You'd sit around with your family, you'd do it, it'd be a little bit like, I guess, a crossword puzzle. Now, the second place that children started to belong more in the second half of the 19th century was at home. Children increasingly became the center of rituals that defined home life. The Victorians were losing a bunch of things that other British people had used to fix their identities. They lost senses of community. There was no longer a set of community rituals that bound the, the bound people together. They also lost the sense of, of religious certainty that had animated so many people. And in response to that, family and the home became increasingly enchanted, increasingly an important symbolic center of life. And in the family and in the home, children were the idols. They were the things that were worshipped. There's a bunch of changes that we can point to that show this. Um, one is that people started to keep track of their ages. We can see this as well as the growing enumeration of society. You might ask somebody in the 18th century how older they were, and it might take a little while. They'd know they were older than the person who sold milk down the road, but they might not be able to tell you that they were 32 or 45. In the 19th century, people started to keep track of their own age like it mattered. Um, children also started to call their parents mummy and daddy instead of sir and madame. People also got last names. Before that, last names were, were something that was quite rare, um, reserved only for the elites, but now everybody started to get a last name, which suggested that they wanted to imagine the family as this thing that had both a past and a future that each person was participating in. Another big thing that, that happened was that daily life was marked by a series of, of small rituals. The biggest one that we still have is the family dinner taking place in the dining room with a gigantic 
big proud table and chairs and children sit there and listen to their mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and family friends talk about the newspaper um in a wonderful moment i you can't make this stuff up a victorian businessman named titus salt every evening before dinner would wait by the dinner bell looking at his pocket watch waiting for the precise moment when dinner was to be served, and he would ring the bell with the same kind of punctuality that he expected his factory workers to come to, to work in the factory. But the absolute biggest domestic ritual was Christmas. So before the, the, the 17th century, Christmas was this insane collective ritual that whole communities would gather in. It was drunken. It would last for 12 days. People would do things like dance the sword dance and, and go to mummer's plays. It was not something for children at all. In the 19th century, Christmas became the purview of children. This great, disgusting, old pagan figure of Father Christmas um, was transformed from the symbol of, of, of age and even of, 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 of menace to the figure that we have now of Santa Claus, this, this happy grandfatherly figure who brings every children around, child around the world a present. Um, Christmas became the central feature of family life. It moved away from public houses where uh, uh, it used to be held, from, from manors, from civic greens, and into the domestic home. It became marked by domestic uh, uh, decoration, by Christmas trees and ornaments. People celebrated it by purchasing mass-produced goods like Christmas cards, presents, crackers, Christmas books. People celebrated by consuming pre-made literature made just for Christmas, like A Christmas Carol, or that horrible poem about old Saint Nick, or by, in a later age, drinking Coca-Cola. So these were the two places that Victorian children belonged, the home and in school. And as the 19th century turned to the 20th century, that model of childhood became dominant, and it became the kind of uh, childhood that most of us today in the West experience. So thanks very much for joining me today on this extra sleepy episode of Making Historian. Um, as always, I would like to thank Jonathan Lear, my colleague, uh, for the wonderful theme music um, that opens and closes each show. You can find that at Jonathan Lear's Bandcamp. The album is called Reflection. Um, I will see you guys tomorrow.